When people describe you, do you think that they say that you're dignified? Would you want them to say that? This is Rabbi Yitzchak Price with another episode of Tachas Talks, growth-oriented, partial-related Torah podcast. We are up to the Torah portion of Balak, the portion that comes to a close with the tragic episode of Baal Peor. Baal Peor was a form of idolatry, a very base form of idolatry. You could call it a, a subhuman form of idolatry, where, where people would defecate in front of the idol. And the Israelites, or probably particularly the Israelite men, had been seduced into the practice of this Baal Peor by the Moabite women. At the advice of Bilam, the corrupted uh, kind of anti-prophet prophet, uh, who is trying to, to curse Israel and to bring us down spiritually. And when that fails, he decide, just decides to destroy our spiritual excellence by having us involve ourselves with the Moabite women and with the idolatry of Baal Peor. And the text describes, the men, the populace, but again, ostensibly the men, began to involve themselves with the Moabite women which led to somebody they attached themselves, they affixed themselves to this very base idolatry of Peor. And aside from the fact that the women were specifically uh, trying to lure them into this idolatry, Rav Chaim Shmulevitz, one of the great Muslim masters and Torah scholars, Talmudic scholars of the middle of the last century, describes there has to be another element of correlation between this element of the the breakdown with the sexual impropriety and this ultimate very base form of idolatry. And before addressing how that happens, he raises another point, a rather peculiar series of verses that are again addressing the Baal Peor idolatry a few parshas down the road in Devarim. And in chapter 4 of Deuteronomy of Devarim, Moshe is teaching the Israel the Torah prohibition against modification of the Torah. Do not embellish the mitzvahs. Do not add to that which I have commanded you. Do not detract. Do not limit or delete. And that is the Torah prohibition against modification. We cannot, let's say on Sukkot, instead of taking in hand the four species of the Lulav and the Esrog and the Hadas and the Rava, those branches, to decide, I'm going to add an avocado into the mix. I'm going to also hold some tulips. Intending that this be part of the mitzvah, that would be a Torah violation. Or, I'm going to preach that you no longer need one of these species, and that the mitzvah can be done with three out of the four. That would be a violation of the Torah prohibition. Or, to make a modification of the Torah by claiming that something that is really only a rabbinic protection is actually a biblical mitzvah. To add to the Torah, to modify the mitzvah, to detract from the mitzvah in any way, that is the Torah prohibition of lo sosif, lo sigra. And then the text continues, a nechem haros, you, your eyes saw, you, this generation that Moshe is talking to, when I'm telling you don't modify the Torah, I'm telling you that your eyes saw, you saw what God did at that travesty of the Baal Peor, our Parsha, when dealing with the fact that the men involve themselves with the pagan practices of Baal Peor, all of those men 
who followed that Baalpur system, Hishmido Hashem Hashem wiped them out. Moshe, when preaching to us against making modifications of the Torah, is reminding us of the tragic attachment to the Baal Peor deity and the terrible subhuman behaviors that it were associated with Baal Peor and that God struck us down as described at the end of our Parsha. What is the connection between that and the Torah prohibition against modification of the Torah? And Rav Chaim Shalavis explains that this Baal Peor type of practice, what type of, what's the psychology of an idolatrous practice that has people act in such subhuman ways with such disregard for human dignity. The psyche of I am above needing to be controlled. That there are no boundaries. Anything goes. And that attitude that even to this God, my God, allows that there be no boundaries, no parameters, no sense of classic societal norms, no inhibitions. It's just all open territory. That's the Baal Peor. And that is associated with the attitude that has us wanting to do away with boundaries, do away with parameters, do away with guidelines and restrictions. And I'll take the Torah's mitzvahs and I'll make subtle changes. I'm not starting by claiming there's no such thing as a Torah, no such thing as mitzvahs, but I'll modify them and start tweaking them. And when I do so, I'm basically saying there are no absolutes. And there are no absolutes. I make one small change over here, another subtle change over there, and in a short period of time, it's all washed away. The Talmud describes the Yetzirah, the evil inclination. He doesn't come to a person and say, hey, you know, simply live life with no boundary, but he starts by saying, Hayom Omer Lo Make this subtle modification. Make this change. Stop doing this small element of a mitzvah. Start doing this very subtle breach of the Torah. And that gets to the point that eventually it's all washed away. Uh, by the end, Omer Lech move to the pagan practices. Modification of the Torah and the Baal Peor share the same root. Hence that juxtaposition over there and Moshe's message. You saw what happened. You saw how far you can go. You saw that you can get involved in the most severe forms of idolatry the forms of idolatry that reflect on the fact that there are there's an attitude of having no need for control and no sense of of standards and human dignity that starts with a very small modifications. Rechaim Shalevitz takes this idea further, and he says that the attitude of Baal Peor, the attitude of that to be behind this type of idolatry in Balpur starts from what seems like a very kosher place. And it starts with an attitude, with a hashkafa, with a perspective that at its core is in fact quite kosher, that it is in fact highly encouraged, but with a slight corruption leads to such a tragic outcome. And that is the concept of Gadlusa Adam, of the greatness of humanity, of the fact that we as human beings are really to treat ourselves as the pinnacle of creation. And we should view ourselves as having incredible potential. And Gadlus Adam, the greatness of humanity, when twisted from saying that we have a potential of attachment to the infinite, we can be associated 
with infinite God by adhering to the guidelines that he gives us, by living with the refined attitudes and perspectives that come from perceiving our relationship with God, by living with the dignity that comes from recognizing that we're made in the image of God, by perceiving our godliness. But a twist of that has us say, we are so great that we need no preaching. We need no guidance. We need no guidelines. And that same godless Adam, which can be so significant in pulling us up to aspire to great heights that can help us soar toward infinite potential, can allow us to become animals and, in a sense, even sub-animalistic. Because a human being who acts like an animal is actually far more of a failure than an animal who acts like an animal. The godless Adam should be the goal that sense of human greatness and human potential, but when twisted, can lead to such tragic outcomes. This concept of human dignity, human greatness, has to be coupled with a sense of dignity. Human greatness has to be coupled with a sense of refinement and that I reflect God to the world. But looking at our generation, it's interesting, Rabbi Chaim Shalomit's writing probably 60, 70 years ago, is bemoaning the fact that there's such a breakdown, there's such a lack of regard for who I am and what I represent. There's such a degree to which we are simply not willing to be restricted and dignified. It's interesting. You look at pictures of the, well, here in Cincinnati, the Reds games, wherever you live, you look at pictures of the of the professional sports arenas of the 1920s, 1930s, and people were dressed up as they in general dressed up to go to social events. It wasn't that they dressed down or undressed to be part of a human shared experience. Shared human socialization meant appreciating the fact that we are comrades in this uh, joint experience called uh, human beings populating a world and interacting with each other like human humanity and not like the animals that surround us. Dignity, refinement, far from as common as they once were, but so critical in understanding what it means to be great, what it means to have the idea of godless Adam. And if you want to take steps toward becoming a little more refined, toward becoming the type of people that when others are giving us accolades and adjectives that come to mind that naturally they would describe this as dignified, I think we can start with very small steps and look at our behaviors, our deeds, our words, and say, is there something about how I speak that I could modify ever so slightly to drop maybe some coarse language or to add some subtle niceties, pleasantries into my speech that would reflect a sense of dignity, reflect the fact that I deem the other party I'm talking to as a dignified person. Elements of how we eat, of what we eat, where we eat, the mannerisms by which we eat. Are there subtle changes that we can do to eliminate some behaviors that are a little bit less than refined or to add some behaviors that would make it a little more refined? You know, the test is sometimes, you know, you're totally on your own, nobody else home, and am I going to bother actually taking the tuna fish and putting it onto a plate or can I just simply eat it out of the can? Am I going to bother slicing and dicing and, and making myself a nice dinner or am I going to just jump at the food, but recognizing we're no less human 
when we are on our own and we're part of a nice social dinner. And I am not one to comment about having great culinary talent and skill and, and putting things together in a way that is particularly refined, but I do find that we feel like more of a mensch when we eat like a mensch. We feel more elevated and refined when we sit down and eat in a more dignified manner than grabbing something to eat as we run out the door. Is there some element, as we commented, of our speech, some about our eating, of elements of how we dress, of elements that could better reflect our sense of appreciation for the fact that I reflect God's image to the world. Elements in terms of any conduct and subtle steps of a slight embellishment over there, adding or dropping. The exact antithesis, when we're told don't add or modify or twist any elements of the Torah, understand that those are set parameters. Well, many of our areas of speech and how we eat and where we eat and how we dress, many are are not particularly governed by aspects of halacha, by Jewish law or societal law per se. But within those slight embellishments of enhancements and eliminations of maybe habits that we've taken on that are a little bit less than refined and dignified, sometimes very slight tweaks in those areas can help move us in that right direction and do the antithesis of what the slight tweaks to the Torah could do in eliminating our sense of that there are out, you know, elements that control and that there are parameters and guidelines by us making slight tweaks to make our conduct a little bit more controlled, refined, dignified. We can become people who are therefore ourselves far more controlled and refined and dignified. And we can therefore become the type of people who will be far more likely to achieve our tachlis.